All right, cool. So I totally didn't get up when Daniel was like, so I have a buddy here, and then he pointed to Fisher. I was like, okay. <laughs> well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Victor, and I'm one of the staff pastors with Chi Alpha, which is just our college ministry to you and I. And I'm so excited to be here. I'm honored to be able to preach again. I'm happy to see all of you guys. Welcome to church. Thank you for being here. So if I don't know your name, I would love to get a chance to meet you. So please, please come find me after service. So this morning, we're going to continue our Gospel of Mark series. We're working verse by verse through the, through the book. And we're coming up on part 500. I'm just kidding. It's part 41. <laughs> Last week, Pastor Daniel covered Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's coming in as the king. We saw that just as Jerusalem had the opportunity to decide if they would welcome Jesus or not, we also had that choice. We have to decide if we want Jesus to be the king of our lives. If you remember at the end of the passage, last week we saw that Jesus enters into the temple. He kind of looks around, and then he leaves and he goes to bed. And today we're going to read about his coming back. Ooh, it's going to be a good Sunday, I can tell you what. So we're going to pick up our story in Mark 11, verses 11 through 25. So again, that's Mark 11, verses 11 through 25. So it says this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And when he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered to him and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray that you would start to move in the hearts of people. Jesus, we pray that as we look into your holy scriptures, that we would be enlightened. God, would you reveal something new to our hearts? Would you reveal something fresh? Jesus, would you help me to speak whatever it is that you want to say to your church? In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. So, for those of you who don't know me, I am I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Growing up in a bigger city, and one full of many Hispanics, by the way, soccer was not a sport, it was a lifestyle. It was everything. All of my family and all of my friends and all of my classmates played and watched soccer. So naturally, it meant that I could only ever watch play soccer. And unfortunately, 
When you move from a city from, with more than half a million people to a town of only 1,500 people, your options for sports become very limited, turns out. So when I moved to Britt, Iowa, which is a really tiny town, most of the friends that I had met only played soccer for fun. They kind of kicked the ball here and there, but it really wasn't anything exciting. And there wasn't an official school team. When it came to my first full school year, because I came at the very end of my sixth grade year, all of my friends were like, hey, you should go out for football. It's super fun, you get to hit people, and you don't have to run very much. And if you know soccer, all you're doing is just running. For whatever reason, we're just running around trying to catch one ball. And so this was exciting for me. I was like, oh man, that makes, that's kind of cool. So eventually I give in to peer pressure. I sign up, I don't know anything about it. So keep in mind, like I said, I had never, ever watched football. I had never played football. At that point, I had never even thrown a football. So all of this was brand new to me. So as I go through the process, I get my pads, uh, I start going to practices and start kind of learning the, the schedule and the routine. Soon enough, I find myself at my first game. At this point, I still don't understand what the heck is going on. I still don't know what the point of the game is. I still don't even know, what, what do you even call me? Why am I just out on the field? I literally just, they, I remember this specifically. The coach is like, hey, Martinez, you're in. And so I, I just like run and I'm like, and like it, everyone's just like staring, everyone like gets down and I'm just like, oh, okay, I'll get down. <laughs> I remember I was wearing this ridiculously long white shirt that was just like hanging over my pants. I was wearing like this like helmet that was from the 90s. It was all nasty. It was supposed to be white, but it was kind of like brown now. It, it was just not good. Can I tell you, I felt like the dumbest person on earth. I literally remember running around and just hitting people for the fun of it. <laughs> I had no idea what the goal was. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I, I, like, I just remember them saying, hut, and everybody just started hitting each other. So I'm like, okay, I'll go and hit people, and I'll go do that. So this went on for a couple of weeks, or a few weeks. I kind of was just going along with it, and I didn't really understand. And then I, just, I really don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, everything clicked in my mind. All the positions made sense, what the goal of the game was. All of that kind of just made sense to me, and I knew what I was doing. I knew what the rules were. I knew what you could and couldn't do. And most importantly, I knew how to succeed. I knew what winning was. And once I understood that, I could get better. I could train. And so from that point on, I began devoting myself to training, to honing my skills, and eventually I became the starter, despite only being 5'6", 160 at the time, for the most of my high school career. Once I understood what my role was, what my purpose was, everything changed. Everything changed. So the question I want to ask you, church, this morning, what is your purpose? Why are you here today specifically? Some of you might be in here because your family dragged you, because you feel like, well, I kind of have to go to church. It is Sunday. And you have no idea why you're here. You're just here. Others of you might have been coming to church and you're getting involved and you like the music, you like the nice people, you like the free coffee and the free things and the free food, and 
all that is great, but you're still like, I still don't know what exactly, what it is that I'm trying to accomplish or what even this place is trying to accomplish. Other, others of us are committed to Jesus and the church, but we're still trying to find what our main purpose is. With any organization, the true path to success is common purpose and common understanding. The church of God is no different. If we are to win for the kingdom, if we are to achieve all that God has for, here, for us here on earth, we have to be on the same page. We have to be. So let's dive back into our text and see what Jesus has to say. So before, before we kind of start diving through the story, we have to understand something. We have to understand that Mark is using this literally device that's where he sandwiches one story in the middle of two. And the key to understanding the story at the beginning, at the end, is to understand the middle part. So like a sandwich. They're dependent on each other. For our text, the key to understanding what Jesus is trying to say in the fig tree passage in the beginning and the call to prayer at the end is the middle passage. So it'll make more sense as we kind of start to go along. So let's dive into the first section. So looking at ver the first three verses, it could kind of be confusing and weird to like, Jesus gets mad at this random fig tree because it wasn't doing like what he wanted it to do, but out of season, it's just really weird. But we have to understand, we have to look beneath the surface. Like all scripture, we have to know what we can, beyond what we can see. If we look closer at it, we'll see that Mark makes it clear by the way that he's writing, by pointing out these little details, that this incident, this story that happens, it's been dramatized to help tell the story. This is implied and makes sense when we read verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. So like I said, Mark makes it a point to include all of these little details about the tree being in leaf or showing signs of fruit and talking about the season of, of figs. Essentially, Jesus sees that the tree shows signs of potential fruit. Keep that in mind. It shows signs of potential fruit, but it turns out to be deceptive. It shows signs of fruit, but it does not. We read this again in verse 14, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. I know this is a lot of fig talk, and this is a lot about talking about trees, but there's an important principle here. Jesus is looking for fruit. Jesus is looking for fruit. So the question is, what is fruit? What does fruit even look like? And hear me, I'm going to say fruit like a million times in this sermon. I'm sorry. It's just the way that it worked out. It, I literally controlled F and it was like over like 50 or 60 times. I'm so sorry. So thinking about fruit again, we have to go all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the start. The question that humanity has long been asking is, why did God create us? The very, very, very simplified version or the answer to this is that the Trinity, that is to say God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they've always existed. It wasn't like they were created a long, long time ago. They have always existed in this kind of special relationship in which they have loved and served each other for all of time. And like parents who long to have a family, wanted to share and extend their love. 
So God creates Adam and Eve, and the first thing he commands them is found in Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living, every living thing that moves on the earth. So, bearing fruit or being fruitful is producing something that is a blessing and has the potential to reproduce. That is a blessing and has the potential to reproduce. So this has always been what God's plan was. All the way back into Genesis, he wants us to bear fruit that is a blessing to the world. So even though it might just seem like Jesus was hungry, we'll find out that this incident was not just a random event that happened. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to make an illustration. He was trying to help the disciples and those who would read on that he was saying something. So keep in mind the principle of bearing fruit. So we know that God's desire is the production of fruit. It's been said since all the way in the beginning of Genesis, since the creation of man. How does that kind of tie in with our story? So let's keep going through our text. So if we read, starting in verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who, brought, who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry through anything through the temple. So again, Jesus comes back. So you remember, he kind of came the first time and he was just exploring. But he, he left and he comes back. And again, his main focus is not Jerusalem. It's not talking to people. It's the temple. So we need to understand a little bit of background in the temple. I promise I'll try to make this as clear as possible. But keep chucking along with me. So the temple during Jesus' time had four major divisions. The court of the Gentiles the court of women, the court of priests, and the holy of holies. Four major divisions. The largest area by far was the area, the court of the Gentiles. This was the area where non-Jews could come. So it was the only place where everyone was allowed to come. It was the furthest they, they, they could go. Some historians claim that that area was 500 yards by 350 yards. Five football fields by three and a half football fields. That alone is roughly 35 acres. It's a big church, isn't it? So going past this, to understand why merchants and money changers would even be allowed in the temple, you have to understand the temple system and, and sacrifices. So in the Old Testament or the time before Jesus, in order to be right before God, you had to make a sacrifice to pay for your sins. Sacrifices, as required by the law of Moses, included the killing of specific animals. And unless you were a rancher or you were a farmer, you didn't just have a, donk or a, a goat or a ram in your back pocket. So all of these animals, they needed to come from somewhere. And what better place to sell them right where you need them? What better place than where everyone has to come to sacrifice? On top of that, if you were a traveler from a different region and you wanted to come to the temple in Jerusalem, well, if you don't have the, the right currency to pay for your animal, what are you going to do? Lucky for you, there's money changers. I can easily change that money for you, but it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you quite a bit, too. 
So you need to buy your animal, which already was expensive, but then you need to change, in order to buy that animal, you need to change the currency that you already have for another price. So this system was built upon profit. It was a huge, huge operation. 35 acres of just merchants, animals, money changers. Josephus, a Jewish historian, at one point records that in AD 66, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed in one week. The immense volume of trade and exchange was crucial, not only for the maintenance of proper worship, because that was the way that you connected to God, but this church has got to make money. These bills got to be paid. I got to make sure that I have a good retirement package. So Jesus arrives at this sacred place and he's deeply, deeply disturbed. Instead of seeing the beautiful sight of of God's people worshiping and praying and, and getting on their knees and connecting to God, he sees stalls and tables full of merchandise and watches as vendors take advantage of helpless people who are trying to connect with God. Instead of hearing the sweet sound of praise and worship, Jesus finds himself hearing merchants and patrons argue over a price. In righteous anger, Jesus gets up and he turns over the tables and he starts kicking down the seats of those and he starts stopping people from buying merchandise. This is it, that's it, that's it, no more. He stops the flow of the sacrifices. We then read in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, my house, my house will be called a house for prayer for all nations. But you, you have made it into a den of robbers, a den of thieves. You've brought people into this place and have corrupted. You've brought animals in this place and merchandise and stalls and tables and you've corrupted it. This temple was supposed to be a holy place that helped people connect vertically to God, but also horizontally with other people around them. And through this connection with God and with other people, a blessing would come out of the temple. That was its original purpose, is that God made that temple so that through it, the nations would be blessed, all the way back to Abraham. The temple of God was made to bear fruit. In that same statement, he says, my house should be called a a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus doesn't make this statement in the deepest part of the temple where no one else was allowed. He makes this statement where everyone could hear him. He makes this in the court of Gentiles. Many Israelites at the time thought that the Messiah would come, the the long-awaited hero of Israel would come, and he would get rid of all the outcasts, he would get rid of all the outsiders, he would get rid of all the people that were less than, and he would make room for the Jews. That was their expectation. But instead, when Jesus comes to the temple, he does the exact opposite. Oh, in that temple, he says, in that court, he says, this place is not meant for sheep, it's not meant for goat. It's goats. It's not meant for rams. It's made for people. So be gone. The temple was meant to bear fruit, 
of helping people connect to God, but instead it was preventing people from connecting to God. It was just barren like the fig tree that Jesus had cursed. So how then does this relate to us thousands of years later? Well, in the Old Testament, the temple was the physical dwelling place of God's spirit. But in the New Testament, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we, as the followers of Jesus, become that holy temple. We become the final dwelling place of God's spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul then later writes in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So what then does this mean? It means that you and I are the new living temple of God. And we are called to bear fruit. The people of God are meant to produce fruit. The people of God are meant to produce fruit. So just like the physical temple in Jerusalem, we are called to connect God, but also we have to help others connect with God. If we think back to the principle found in Genesis, producing something that is a blessing and can reproduce can manifest itself in two ways. One way is through the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Each of these virtues are a powerful blessing, not only to our own lives, but to those around us. When someone is full of just supernatural joy, where they just can't help but be joyful in what God is doing, it goes viral to other people. When we're so full of love that we just keep loving people, even through their flaws and their defects, that love goes viral. The fruit of the Spirit is made to be a blessing, but it reproduces itself. The other form of blessing is the reproduction of disciples. We are all, we are all called to make disciples of Jesus and to raise up spiritual children. We're called to help others become like Jesus and bear fruit. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Every disciple is called to go and make other disciples by leading people to faith in Jesus and teaching them how to follow him. The point is, if we truly are walking with Jesus, who is the ultimate fruit bearer and the temple of living God, we can't help but bear fruit in our personal holiness and devotion and reproduction of disciples. That is to say that if you are following Jesus to the full extent, if you claim to be a Jesus follower, you can't help but be joyful. You can't help but be full of love. At the same time, you can't help but want to go talk to other people and say, Jesus is Lord. It comes from this place of starting with Jesus. Jesus was also 
Jesus was indignant at the fact that the temple was barren, meaning it wasn't producing fruit. It had lost its purpose. But it wasn't just the fact that they were focused on the wrong things. It was the fact that those wrong things were keeping others out. It was those same distractions that were keeping the Gentiles out. So the question this morning, church, if Jesus came into his temple, which is our lives and his church now, would he rejoice at the beautiful fruit that is being produced? Or would he be indignant at the barrenness? Would he rejoice at the beautiful fruit that is being produced in your own life, but through the big C capital church? Or would he be indignant at the barrenness? Would he find branches and branches of ripe fruit for the picking? Or would he find merchants and money changers and animals in the court? Would he say, my house is a house of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you've made it a house of hate, misery, distress, intolerance, impatience, hostility, doubt, and cruelty. Let's not be the barren tree. Let's not be the barren tree. So if God's desire is the production of fruit, and we are called to bear fruit, how exactly can we make that connection? So we'll continue on in our story, starting in verse 21, which says this, as they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. So we finally come to the second half of the first section, and Mark finishes, finishes the fig tree sandwich by noting that the fig tree from the previous day has withered. Once the disciples see this, everything comes full circle. Everything just clicks. You see, the tree had shown signs of fruit, and Jesus was looking for that. But as he got closer and as he inspected it, he found nothing but leaves. Although I'm sure the tree was beautiful, I'm sure the leaves looked great, and it was this sight to be seen, it was completely barren. Do you see the connection? The temple was this glorious building. It was only made with the best of the best. The priests spared no dime in building that temple. And yet, there was no fruit. Mark is making a point that he wants the readers, us, to get. Just as the fig tree withered, the temple will also wither. Mark's first readers and Jesus' disciples at the time had to be wondering, if not even the temple, the place where God's presence was the strongest and where people could connect to him was bearing fruit, the temple was made specifically for that purpose. If not even the temple could bear fruit, how could anyone bear fruit? It's then that we come into our final few verses. It's in this context that Mark concludes the whole narrative with Jesus is saying on faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Starting in verse 22, we read this. 
And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that it, he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who else is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. As the disciples grapple, confused, are trying to wrap their head around this idea of the temple being barren, Jesus calls the disciples to trust in God. He says, have faith in God. Things are about to change. Things are going to look different in your life, but you need to trust him. When we keep in mind the, the past few verses and we think of the bigger picture, Jesus isn't just making some exaggerated statement. He's not trying to use poetical language. He's referring to the temple mount, the temple, when he's referring to a mountain being thrown into the sea. He's saying what's been established, what you see to be known, what you have known all of your life, it will be thrown in the sea because of faith. He's referring to the destruction and judgment of the temple. No Jew could ever, ever think of the removal of the temple. It was just too crazy. No one ever dared to think that. But Jesus, he wasn't just getting rid of the temple. He was going to replace it. He himself would be the replacement. See, God's presence was said to dwell the strongest in the temple. It could not contain all of his glory, but through that one focal point, that one intersection, his presence was the strongest. And Jesus came, and he was God himself. He came incarnate, and he says, I'm here to be with my people. God stepped down and dwelt among us as a man. And all who had put their faith in Jesus now had access to the Spirit of God. The temple operated on the sacrificial system, meaning that it depended on the need for sacrifices. But through the sacrifice of his own life, Jesus would become the final and all-sufficient sacrifice. You don't need to sacrifice anymore. Jesus paid the price. As he gave his life, the temple, the, the curtain in the temple, which signified the division between us and God, it was removed. Jesus was saying, you don't need to come to the holy temple anymore. You can just come to me and you already met God. This barrier that was removed, that was there between us and God because we were so unholy, Jesus came to be that and says, I'm the bridge to get you there. You don't need to work anymore. You don't need to offer a sacrifice. Just trust and put your faith in me and I promise you'll see God. I promise that you'll know who the Father is. As a new temple, Jesus was making a new powerful point. It's only through Jesus that we can produce fruit. So maybe you're like the disciples wondering, if coming to church or the temple or doing the religious stuff just isn't enough anymore, how then can anybody bear fruit? How can anybody... Please, God. So think about to the very start of the story. We learn that God desires fruit. And secondly, that 
the people of God are meant to produce fruit, but how do we connect them? It's Jesus. Jesus is the bridge between the God of bearing fruit and the people who are made or called to bear fruit. Jesus is the one that ties them together. So if you want to be a person that produces fruit, if you want to have a fruitful life, you have to be connected to Jesus. I'm sorry, but there is no other way. There was never meant to be another way. John 15.4 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He makes it abundantly clear that if we remain attached to Jesus, we can't help but produce fruit. We don't need to strive anymore. We don't need to figure things out. We don't have to get holy and be 100% perfect. We just need to abide or remain or stay with Jesus, walk alongside him. All that means is we just be with Jesus. That's what we're called to do. It's just be with Jesus. And this can look like spending extravagant time in scripture or prayer. This can look like miniature breath prayers that you have throughout the day where you just essentially just say, thank you, God, or God, please help me. God, would you move in this situation? This can look like sitting still and meditating on the sweet presence of God. It just means that you're with Jesus. So all that to say, if you aren't in scripture, if you aren't praying, if you aren't remaining in the vine, you're never going to bear fruit. You're just going through the motions. And church, as a person who has gone through that life, who has gone through the motion, who has wasted time sitting in a space, there is so much more. There is so much more that we haven't even begun to unpack. Maybe you have this desire to produce fruit. You want to please Jesus and you long to see him move in your life. But something is standing in the way or keeping you from doing that. Maybe you might have vendors and animals in your court, but you just don't know how or even if you want to get rid of them. The beauty is that Jesus makes a way. Going back to the text when Jesus is talking about prayer, it doesn't have to be these words or this specific structure or certain things that have to be said. Prayer is just essentially connecting to your Father. It's talking to Him. It's relating to Him. It's hearing from Him. It's listening to what He has to say for your life. And it just takes many forms. Jesus is simply saying, if you connect with me, if you turn your attention away from the animals, from the merchants, if you turn away from the prophets, all those other distractions, if you just look to me, all things are possible. And then he adds one final note. Those who could not forgive would not be forgiven. Just like the Jews at the time who held deep bitterness towards the outsiders, to the people who were less than, to the people who didn't matter as much. If we hold on grudges and bitterness towards those around us, we inhibit what God wants to do. 
Jesus ties in unforgiveness because unforgiveness is like this wall that stands between you and God. The reality is that our prayers are attempt to connect with God. No matter how hard we throw them, no matter how many times we throw them, they will never break the wall of unforgiveness. They will never break the wall of bitterness. They will never break the wall of anger. So hear me, if you're in this room and you've been hurt or taken advantage of, please understand that God wants to heal you. He wants to restore everything that was lost inside of you and bring everything that was damaged and dead back to life. But we have to notice something. Jesus doesn't present forgiveness as a state you'll reach. He doesn't say it's the feeling you'll get eventually. It's a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. Regardless of what the other person did, or regardless of what we think they deserve or what we even deserve, here's the reality. It's that God looked at you and I, all of us, He saw the filth. He saw all the things we had done wrong. He saw all of the things that were terrible about us. And he still said, I love you. And the moment that we say, God, help me, he's there with open arms. He's not waiting for you to go back and to correct everything. He's not waiting for this 10 long or this 10 page long apology. He's just waiting for you to run back and say, I'm here, Father. Work through me. You and I stood guilty before God, and Jesus still died for us. We didn't get at all what we deserved, but that's the beauty of grace. Only through Jesus can we bear fruit. So the main idea this morning is this. The people of God are meant to produce fruit. So for those of you who don't know uh, my story, and I shared this a little bit uh, a couple months ago. So I was in this relationship um, that lasted uh, roughly two years or so. And there was a lot of damage done. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of hurt. We didn't have our eyes focused on Jesus. We were pursuing each other, and we became idols of each other. And we stopped seeking after what God wanted to do in our lives. Truthfully, at this point, coming to church and doing the religious things like serving, playing on the worship team, all of those were just a weekly obligation. At that point, I was just doing them because I felt like I had to. There was no clear purpose. It was just me going through the motions. And eventually, the relationship ended, and I found found myself being so, so bitter. I had this deep anger in my bones. I I wanted the other person to come and to apologize and to take the blame for everything that had happened. I thought I deserved it. In this season, I just felt completely disconnected from God. I just wasn't seeing any breakthrough. And in the fall of 2019, uh, the the late Dick Schroeder, uh, a Kai Alpha giant, he came to... ISU and he was going to have this event called Father Heart of God 
And this whole event was based around the concept of forgiveness and giving your bitterness towards God. And so I really felt like God was making a way for me to go, like started clearing my schedule and just making it, make it a possibility for me to go. And so I go, and if I remember correctly, he, he had us do this one exercise. So I think there was like 40, 50 people there, and we made this giant circle, and we cleared the middle of the room. And then he gave us this sheet that categorized the different hurt that we had. So in it, we would say, I'm feeling bitter towards whatever title it was. So some of it could be like my parents, another or someone from my past, a romantic relationship. It was a long list. And he said, write down everything that you're bitter about, everything that is causing you pain, write that down. So I start writing all the stuff that I'm feeling. I start uh, listing everything. I had no idea what was gonna happen. And then he says, okay, everybody good? I want you to take that paper. You can rip it, you can crumble it up, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. And then we all threw it in the middle of the room. Can I tell you, that day, I decided to walk away from forgiveness. I decided to walk away from the bitterness and the hurt that I felt. And no, this wasn't some kind of perfect thing that happened. It wasn't like just overnight I woke up and I was like, man, I feel great. I'm gonna walk in joy. Yes, it's gonna be great. No, but it was every time that I felt anger, every time that I wanted to blame the other person for my problems, every time that I thought that I was owed an apology, I said, no, Lord, I walked away from bitterness. I walked away from the pain. I made a decision to say, Jesus, I'm gonna keep my eyes on you. Lord, even if I don't feel it, even if I don't wanna believe it, even if I wanna hold on to this, I'm gonna to choose to say, Jesus, you're better than the unforgiveness. Jesus, you're better than this pain that I'm feeling. Jesus, you're the way. And I promise you that over time, I found forgiveness. Jesus, over that time, God starts to work in my heart and say, now that you have rid of all these animals and all of these merchants, let's get to work. Let's start to see that joy. Let's start to see that love that's now gonna flow out of you. I felt relieved and I felt like a new man. I began to encounter the Lord in powerful ways. And after some time, God gifted me with an amazing, beautiful wife finished that healing she completed me so thinking back to the very beginning of what I asked what is our purpose why do we come to church the answer is to bear fruit so what does this mean for you church the million dollar question that I have for you for all of us not just newcomers, but all of us in Chi Alpha, all of Scent Church. Are you bearing fruit? I don't mean do you serve the best to your ability. I don't mean are you willing to get in a, a theological fight with anybody to defend Jesus. I don't mean do you understand and know a lot about theology. I mean are you bearing fruit? Does your life reflect love, joy, peace, etc., etc.? Does your life reflect that? Or are you angry, bitter, full of regret and shame and pain? 
the other question I want to ask, it's even harder. Have you ever brought anyone to come to know Jesus? Who are you helping to follow Jesus? Are you even trying? And I don't mean that as a pointed question. I don't mean that out of anger. I just want to help you to get to your purpose. You were made to be in relationship with Jesus and to help others with Jesus. You were made to pray and help the other nations pray. Just like the temple in the Old Testament, be the living temple of Jesus. I'm not here to condemn you, church, and I'm not here to make you feel like garbage, but the reality is that God has entrusted us with his life-giving spirit. How dare we be bad stewards of his good, good spirit? One day we'll all give account for what we've done. And my hope is that if you hear anything, it would be, well done, good and faithful servant. Not depart from me, I never knew you. Churches, as I was thinking about this message and and as I was praying, I just felt God nudge me and just say, Victor, remind the church that this, this message is not about working harder. This message is not about trying to do more. It's not about trying to learn more. It's about remaining with Jesus and then everything else will follow through. So if you're in this place, hear me. I'm not trying to tell you that you're saved based on how much you do. You're saved because of your faith in Jesus, nothing else. So if anything, start with Jesus. If anything, start reading the scriptures. If anything, start praying. And then out of that, you won't be able to help but to talk about Jesus. So if you're in this place, even if it's your first or a thousand, and you want your life to be full of of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all you have to look and do is look at Jesus. Put your trust in him. You have to get connected to the vine. You have to. It means giving up control of your life and saying, Jesus, I'm gonna follow in your footsteps. This means making a commitment to spend time in scripture. If you haven't been reading your Bible, make this the starting point. If you don't know how, there's people who can figure it out. But make a commitment to spend extravagant, intimate, intentional time with Jesus in the scripture and you'll see how God will start to speak to you. The other thing is, dive into community. This church, it's a gift that God has given us. It's a beautiful gift. And all of these people are amazing. And I promise you that if you take one person out to coffee and you get to know them, you'll see why the church is a blessing. As you get to know people's story and get to hear about how God is moving in them and you might be able to offer them some advice, you'll see that in those times, Jesus is moving powerfully. God can speak through community as well. And maybe you might be in this room thinking, Victor, I do all that stuff and I'm I'm still not seeing fruit. Well, if that's the case, then it's time that you take your God-given authority through Jesus and you cast whatever mountain is standing between you and God. The mountain of shame is gone. The mountain of guilt is gone. The mountain of apathy and laziness, it's gone in the name of Jesus. The mountain of addiction is gone. So if that's you in this place, take control of that and claim the name of Jesus over that.
I, I was gonna have two ways of response, but I, I just felt the Lord press so strongly that I wanna open up these altars. If you're in this place and you wanna claim the name of Jesus, I promise you there's so much more to life than what you've been experiencing. He wants to give you abundant life. He wants to fill you so that you'll overflow. So these altars are gonna be open. If you wanna receive Jesus, come to these altars. If you want to bear fruit, but you just need to know Jesus more, come to these altars. These altars will be open for everyone. There's also gonna be the prayer team alongside. If you need to pray with someone, if you need to seek more advice, or if you need prayer, please come to these people. But again, the altars are open. Let's be a people who produce fruit and look to the vine who would stay attached to the vine and who look towards Jesus and say, Jesus, you're the only one that'll ever be able to produce fruit.